This is Blue Moon. It's the original fan-made Manchester City podcast. Coming up, we've got news and views from Cities Week. It's your club and this is your show. So it's scary how easy Erling Haaland is making it look in the Premier League. Honestly, watching him score his second hat-trick of the week on Wednesday evening made me think of that I might still have a chance of a career at that level. But then I realised that I'm not some sort of genetic freak or goal-scoring machine. That's now nine goals in five games for the striker, and that's a record for the competition. If you keep in score, Sergio Aguero and Mickey Quinn managed eight in their first five matches. It certainly feels like it's going to be fun watching Norwegian rip up the rulebook. Welcome to this week's Blue Moon podcast. On today's show, we'll be reviewing a pair of Haaland masterclasses as we look back over the talking points from the wins against Crystal Palace and Nottingham Forest. Plus, we'll take a look at City's recent habit of giving teams a two-goal advantage. Later in the show, we'll hear more about the new signing Manuel Akanji. And we'll also get insight into the Champions League opponent Sevilla from Tom Harris from the La Liga Lowdown team. And we'll preview this weekend's trip to Aston Villa as well. I'm David Mooney. With me this week is City fan Adam Monk. Hello. And the Manchester Evening News Chief City Correspondent Simon Bykowski. Hello. Um, so let's, I mean, there's only one place to start really for this week's show, Adam. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to reel off some stats to begin with, uh, because, uh, as I mentioned there, Haaland, um, ripping up the rule book, first player to score nine in his first five Premier League games, quickest player to two Premier League hat-tricks. He did it 16 games quicker than, uh, than Dan Babar. Uh, he's the seventh City player ever in the club's entire history to score back-to-back hat-tricks. You'll thank Stat City for digging that one up. Um, he's got more Premier League goals this season than 15 of the teams. Uh, he's got nine goals from a 105 touches this season. So he's scoring a goal of roughly every 12 touches of the ball. Um, he's the first player to score two Premier League hat-tricks in the same month of August. So, I mean, I, what more? Adam, where has this all come from? How do you how do you summarise like such a good start to, to a City career? Did Manuel Akanji come up with all those stats off the bat? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? I mean... I remember I was probably 12 years old. Yeah, I was 12 when Aguero came through the door and I remember watching him start in prolific fashion, but it felt different when you were watching him because he he almost felt like he got more involved in the game. He was very electric, quick on the ball, could score from any angle, different kinds of goals. With Haaland, it's just mechanical and scary and I don't know how... Looking at it at the moment, I don't know how it can be stopped because... So take the last two games where he scored a hat-trick in both. Um, in fact, you can take the West Ham game or anything really where if there's a team... So let, actually, let's go with the West Ham goal. So if a team can, if a team wants to commit, uh, maybe go for a goal in the second half, play a high line, all he has to do is run in behind and the players that we've got that can service him will find him. If you've got a team like Nottingham Forest or Crystal Palace last week who were 2-0 up defending a 2-0 lead... Um, two banks of five behind the ball. He still manages to find space, and then even if it's a half chance, you know he's so more he's so much more physically adept than the other centre halves in the league that he just manages to get himself on the end of passes. Like that first goal last night, ball comes in. I think most strikers, you know, they would have gone for it, but they wouldn't have won it. They'd have tried to contest it, but it was just complete domination to get to that front post, stick your leg out, convert it. Um, so, yeah, I think because of how proficient he is now, it's going to force Pep's hand to an extent to maybe play a slightly different way, um, play a slightly more risk-based game where we know that we can just put a ball into an area and the chances are, uh, especially in the form he's in at the moment, he's going to make something out of it. So yeah. it's scary to see. 
It's it's interesting, uh, Simon. I think the way that that Guardiola is using him at the moment, because um, I remember I, I remember the talk around when Guardiola arrived and that that Bayern Munich game um, where Sergio Aguero scored a hat trick and basically didn't do anything in the rest of the game, and, and and Guardiola and I think Dominic Torrent talking about how that's not what they want from a striker, and then you look at Haaland's heat map, he's basically in the box all the time, and that's 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 pretty much it, and. The effect that that's having on this City team at the minute is incredible. Yeah, I think you saw um, against Nottingham Forest that he was getting more involved with the play. But the, I mean, the scary thing is that you saw against Liverpool in the Community Shield, De Bruyne tried to find him a few times and couldn't. And then West Ham a week later, he found him and West Ham couldn't stop him. Phil Foden tried like didn't see him or didn't pass to him for a few games and now two games in a row Foden has found him and he's scored and it's it, it, it <laughs> he is just a, a phenomenon and you know like Adam said he's kind of that cold-blooded killer that is inevitable he's got ice in his veins and he just scores whether opposition players like it or not but at the same time like he is that good he just makes everyone in the stadium giddy really. Um, like You can sort of smell the desperation from the opposition defenders trying to, trying to stop him and the crowd are just absolutely loving every single second he's involved in. And, you know, at the end against Forrest, after the game, he just like walked around the stadium kicking the ball in front of him. It was like, it, it, it's his world and we're living in it. Yeah. Yeah, he walked past us at that point, and I was—I I, just—I remember thinking, uh, just as he was—he was knocking it round, like he is just—he's just playing. He's—that's all he's doing. He's just playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He and he just makes it look so simple, and every finish he's had has looked ridiculously simple. But you know, the effort that goes into holding off the defenders and finding the space, and even you know, people said he couldn't press, and then he's pressed Henderson for that for the. Second goal, I think it was. So he he's just he just looks the perfect striker. Yeah, um, Adam. Let's talk about the the Palace hat trick to uh, to begin with, um, because I thought I thought there was there was three very different goals in there, and each one of them showed off like, like a different quality that uh, that he has. Um, I mean. The, the second one especially was a was a ridiculous passing move through the box, um, and the third one was just a, a show of you know put the ball here and I will bulldoze everything in the way to get it in the net. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, the first one, you know, he attacks across a ball that he knows is coming in quickly, uh, heads it in, you know, and I think people were questioning his aerial ability um, at the start of the season. Maybe that was one of the lingering question marks, but he's very quickly rectified that with two headers in two games. Um, and then, yeah, the second, it's just it's just knowing where to stand. And, like, I mean, I, I don't remember him playing because I'm, I'm too, too young to remember what my dad said last night. And I don't want to bring him up on a City podcast, but he said he's very, like, Rude Van Nistelrooy, where he's just sort of there... He's just he just finds a pocket and he's there and he, if the ball falls to him he's going to put it in. I tell you um, what, I can't so, I can't explain the jealousy of being too young to remember Ruud Van Nistelrooy. He, <laughs> he, he was he was an absolute nightmare for City at times. <laughs> yeah, I only remember one United Premier or maybe two United Premier League. So God, you know, Adam, I, I didn't realise you were that young. I've I've had it good. Um, yeah, and then I mean the third was terrifying and like for me. Again, if I can compare him to another player, it's almost like, not stylistically, but in the way that I think it was 
Paul Merson that once said it like where Thierry Henry almost looked like he was playing against school kids because he was just that physically dominant. That third goal against Palace, um, he picks he asked for the ball fifty yards from goal. And it's one of those chances where I'm not even sure if Aguero got played through in that situation, he'd have made he'd have fashioned a goal from it because he's not strong enough, perhaps. He he just picked up the ball, held off Joel Ward at arm's length, and then managed to compose himself all in the midst of doing that it's just it, it it's just like it's just terrifying he, he can do anything um you know the i think i still think my one of my favorite ones that he scored was his first one the penalty because of the way he won it as well where like that gundawan pass at west ham that got threaded through to him it wasn't inch perfect it didn't have to be because he's so quick he can just get on the end of a slightly overhit pass and force a foul from the keeper so like i just said earlier it's it's, it's changed the way we play, I think, to the point where every goal doesn't necessarily have to be picture perfect. It just has to be simply given to him in some way, shape or form. So whether it's on the goal line or whether it's 50 yards from goal and he can make that running behind, whether it's across into the box, it just gives us so many options. Um, and yeah, it's, it's worrying for the other teams. Yeah, um, and and how do you improve on a hat trick uh, in it, it, it's so early in the season, Simon? Well, you go and make it a perfect hat trick the next game, don't you? Um, <laughs> like left foot, right foot, head, uh, all three again. You know, different goals. I think we need to mention Cancelo's cross for for the one that was a bit of head tennis in in the box. But I mean, again, you just can't. You didn't expect it to get any better than than Palace, and it did. Yeah, and. Yeah, I think we need to mention Cancelo and Bernardo, who's just seemed like I watched them in the warm up, just like knocking the ball to each other, and then they just did exactly the same all night. They just found each other again and again and again. Um, but also, like, when was the last time City scored a goal that was three consecutive headers? <laughs> it's um, it just seemed mad to watch them just like popping it on Foden as well, of all people, with, yeah, a, with a good header. You know it's your night when that's happening, do you? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, Haaland's just about four foot taller than everyone else to to nod it in. It it yeah, it, it feels like for all the talk of Haaland needing to adapt to City, City have just very quickly um found a way to to play to his his strengths and he was just, you know, really um it it yeah, it is already hard to find the words to find new ways to describe him or new ways to to talk about him because he just is sublime every game and yeah. he's showing new things again and again and again um, and nobody has come up with a way to way to stop him other than you know get his teammates to not pass him the ball. Yeah, it's a good job you don't have to write about him every week for the next four or five years, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, let's talk about Julian Alvarez, uh, Adam, because, uh, I mean, without Haaland's um, second hat-trick, at least, um, he might have been the headline from the, the Forest game. Uh, he runs a lot, doesn't he? Yeah, it's an understatement. I think um, in that sense, we've definitely replaced that void that maybe Gabriel Jesus had left and maybe some fans were worried about. He just doesn't stop does not stop. Similar to Bernardo, he's just constantly moving off the ball, pressing the goalkeeper, um, and then he's very good on the ball as well. He's sort of got a bit of Tevez about him and a bit of Aguero at the same time with that finish. I mean, that second goal last night was uh, that would that was the one that probably excited me the most because it's it's you know it's all well and good having Haaland, but it's also nice now to finally have a second player in the team that's also clinical. It's sort of a it's a callback to like the Pellegrini days where we had like 
four strikers who could put the ball in the back of the net. Now at least we've got two. Um, so yeah, he, he looks every time he's come on, he's he's fit like a glove as well. I think that that's that's a testament to our scouting department as well. I think Pep said last night that the scouts had had tabs on him for a year and a half, eighteen months, and we're saying how special he was to Pep. Um, and obviously we've profiled him, put him in, and he's just not looked out of place whatsoever. And because that was his first start last night, I think you can sort of say that he's took he's taught no time to fully bed in as well. You know, he's made a few sub cameos look good. He was pivotal in the Palace game as well, I thought, to to turn in the game on its head. Um, so yeah, no complaints from him either, really. It's just, it's all looking brilliant. It's, it's It just looks fantastic. Yeah. How how valuable do you think he'll be, Simon, um, when it comes to working with Haaland? Because it, it's not just a case of, uh, we, as we saw against Forrest, they, they, they can work together and be a good partnership. But also, like we, we've we always had the little niggling worry about Haaland's injury record. So it just means that you can that, that, that you can take it a little bit easier with him, can't you? Yeah. And he's, a, you know, watching him last night, you, you really don't want to whip out the Aguero comparison because Aguero's achieved so much, but you just can't help it because of, you know, his clinical finishes, his running, just the way he sort of moves. And, um, you know, it's really, really hard for a young player to come over from South America and, and instantly kick it off in the Premier League. And, it you know, maybe it's helped Alvarez that all the attention has been on Haaland, so he, he's kind of been able to to settle, but he is, you know, the same as Haaland in that he just is involved in goals. And, you know, um, like Adam said, that Palace comeback, he was involved in two of the goals. And that Bernardo pass to him uh, was absolutely hammered to him in the box and he just controlled it like it was really simple and, and carried on. So he um, he's, he's very, very impressive. And yeah. It's quite. I mean, it's scary that Haaland's only twenty-two, but Alvarez is only twenty-two. Foden's only twenty-two. It's very, very bright for for City's future. I did think it was funny against Forest, though, that uh, while uh, Haaland and, and Alvarez were smacking him in from everywhere, uh, the two other big chances of the game with De Bruyne one on one and Mares one on one, and they both missed. <laughs> well, but <laughs> that's so, like, this, this is what you got to live live up to now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but that sums it up, and you know the. Feel like the um, the Haaland goal at Newcastle and the one against and one of them against Palace that he buried and you think oh yeah easy goal but not necessarily in the past and you know everyone said Jesus had a fantastic start at Arsenal he has Sterling's done all right at Chelsea but Hurley, uh, Haaland's got three more than both of them combined yeah so that just <laughs> shows you kind of what a markup he's been before you bring in Alvarez's two. You can listen to the show ad-free by joining our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Right, well, let's talk about comebacks uh, because in of the last seven games, in uh, in four of them, City have found themselves at least two goals behind. Um, in years gone by, they'd have probably lost those. It's now one, two, drawn two. Um, Adam, first off, um, has something changed, do you think? Do you, do you feel more confident these days when City go behind? Yeah, I'm not sure where the shift has come from, whether last season's title race forced our hand, starting with that West Ham away game. You know, we have done it before, obviously, QPR, but we I don't think we've ever done it in a consistent streak like we have been doing. Um, and I'm sure there's there's probably a stat that about us going 2-0 down at half-time and just like never coming back. I'm pretty sure there has been a stat like that over the years. But then we rectified that against Palace. Um 
so I don't know what it is. It's for me, it's 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 great to watch as a fan. Um, but it's is a bit it, of a is it though? <laughs> I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. Uh, not the uh, what was it the sterilized? No, I can't remember what Miguel Delaney said about us against West Ham. But it's it's not boring to watch anyway. Um, but yeah, like uh, it's it's a double edged sword because obviously you look at City over the past few years under Pep and we've been formidable. Where like we've we've been three 0 up after twenty minutes, whereas now perhaps we're not. So maybe that's a cause for concern. If you are being neutral, you know, we are we are leaking goals that we maybe shouldn't have. You know, I think we barely conceded any from set pieces last season, then managed to concede two against Palace. So, you know, there's this room for improvement. But in terms of going behind and then coming back now, I think the fact that we've just got Haaland up there and we know that he he's almost a guaranteed goal a game, I think that breeds confidence throughout the squad. You know, we did it last season against Villa without him. So we got other, we, you know, we got other goal-scoring threats, you know, peppered around him with De Bruyne, Gundogan, Alvarez, Foden, the likes of them. So I think I think just the level of quality that we've got in the team now um, and how long we've been doing it for now in terms of staying at the top level, getting over 90 points, it's just, I think it's a, a massive psychological thing. I think it's a case of consistent positive reinforcement throughout that team that we just sort of know should we go 2-0 down it's not game over because we're a team that's capable of hitting 3-4 goals in 20 minutes um, so yeah for me I think rather than it being a tactical tweak from Pep I think it's maybe a psychological shift that's been forced by the maybe by the title race last season yeah um, well, let's take a little bit more of an in-depth look at it, uh, because obviously City have had this habit of giving the opposition a two-goal lead uh, lately. It hasn't proved as fatal to their chances in those games that it might have done previously, though. So I've been taking a look at whether something has changed. In the past, when City started badly and fell behind, you could often tell that the game would be a write-off. If you're watching at the ground and City are playing badly, you'll feel the atmosphere turn a little bit sour. City haven't been great at shifting that momentum all the time, or um, sometimes it can feel like they don't have much of a plan B. You just knew nothing was going to change, the tempo in the game wasn't going to change, the, even some substitutions wouldn't really make a difference, you just knew we were almost destined for a poor result if we had a poor opening spell. City could have the best, most expensively assembled squad in the world, but sometimes you could just tell inside the first 10 minutes that it wasn't their day. Here's City fan Dan Burke. I think in recent years you've seen City more often than not being such a well-oiled rhythmic machine that uh, you know they would start games well and they would they would go one nil up and just settle nicely into that rhythm and, and I think it would have a psychological impact on the opposition and, and City would usually just go on to, on to win the games quite comfortably. But then you would often see the, the opposite effect of that where they would concede an early goal and fail to find that rhythm. The opposition would be able to, to dig in and, and, and form a low defensive line and City would struggle to find gaps and, and start getting frustrated. The crowd would get frustrated. Kieran Murray agrees and thinks that in the past, fans could always sense when a bad day at the office was coming. You can see the players' heads go down and body language start to change and people are murmuring around you uh, we aren't getting anything here today uh, there's no chance we're getting anything and it's the same when you're watching away game on telly and um, the messages start to go around fairly early on if City are looking a little bit off the pace and off color and everybody sort of feels or certainly felt in the past that 
the signs were obvious from very early on that we weren't at the races. Kieran adds that there were always some telltale signs of days when City were going to stink out the place. Those games were really, really easy to identify. Sometimes you could even identify them before a ball was kicked and you just felt uh, the, the sort of context, the background circumstances, uh, the nature of the opposition uh, and you just sort of you, you felt uh, that City were doomed a little bit. But maybe things are changing if they haven't changed already. City weren't at the races for the opening 45 minutes against West Ham and the opening hour against Aston Villa on the final two games of last season. And they went on to turn those two goal deficits into four points, crucial for lifting the title. That sort of thing has already happened at the beginning of this season too. This season we don't seem to need to play that well to certainly get an, a result from the game, if not win it. You look at the game against Palace recently at home where we were 2-0 down but there was no panic. You look at the Villa game the end of last season we were 2-0 down and there probably was panic and then that kind of, you know, we, we turn the corner in that game and then it happens again and again and again. That's Adam Carter who runs the website and Twitter account Stat City. He thinks the comebacks are starting to become a pattern. It starts becoming the reality now. Teams are going to realise actually two goals against these guys isn't going to be enough. It's going to need to be three or four to put us to bed. And I think years ago, I hate to talk about them a lot, but some teams were beaten by United before they even got off the coach just because Old Trafford was such a fortress. And I think now... Once all the teams start thinking, hang about, these are never beaten, it, your job's almost done for you and it's that mentality that we go into games now. When City go 2-0 down in future, we're probably not going to panic as a fan base, certainly not as a team, because we know we can come back. Well, fans may not find it that easy to be as confident as Adam says, but Richard Burns thinks that something has definitely changed in recent months with how City cope with a bad start. Coming back against a really good West Ham team last season, a really good Newcastle team this season, uh, I think just seeing that that shift in momentum that City can pull off so regularly, obviously there's a there's a habit to try and shed there in terms of the going behind, but it's not a bad habit to be in um, to be able to to constantly bring it back and the psychology that or the effect that that will have on other teams of knowing that they can't just sit back or that there's now no set way to just hold on to a lead or, or beat City or no blueprint that you can easily follow. I think that's massively to City's advantage and will. Um, It'll just change the, the mood around every game, even when we do go behind. Dan Burke agrees, adding that mentality-wise, City might have taken something away from one important game that they lost last season. They can take some belief from the comebacks that they've made in recent times, and you think back to the Real Madrid game that we we suffered the defeat in, in the Champions League last year. Um, you saw how important momentum was there, and, and maybe that was something that City took a bit of a lesson from as well, you know, and coming back uh, against West Ham, and, and particularly Aston Villa at the end of last season, and, and now these comebacks against Newcastle and Crystal Palace I think it's um, it's definitely something that City are, are, seems to have worked on and, and now you do have that belief that when they, they do go down the game is not necessarily over and I did think even at 2-0 at half time on, on Saturday against Crystal Palace that um, there was a good chance that City would come back and win and, and they did. Now City comebacks aren't a new thing, they're obviously the two famous ones on the final day in 2012 and at Wembley in 1999 which came during two very different eras at the club City also have the iconic FA Cup comeback too, beating Spurs 4-3 in 2004, despite being 3-0 down and down to 10 men at half-time. But, as Kieran Murray says, comebacks have never been anywhere near as regular as they seem to have been lately. You just feel like we've got the mentality, the players, the coach and the belief at the moment. Teams going two goals ahead of City, they'll always have in the back of their mind that they could throw it away. 
City's strategy of just passing teams to death and making them chase shadows for 90 minutes in and around the hour mark, those teams are going to tire. And when we've got an incredible setup and an incredible squad and now an incredible number nine who can finish teams off, yeah, I think probably a flurry of late goals in terms of a comeback is a fairly new thing, but one that I can feel confident and comfortable with that if we're ever 2-0 down, you can see us finding a breakthrough. So, while City might have been getting better at coming from behind and saving games from losing positions, there's surely only so long before the rescue job is just too much to ask. It might be for the best if City could just put a run of a few simple wins together over the next few weeks instead. Hi, this is Andy Morrison, and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. Get your ears around our bonus episodes every Monday. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. That was a look at uh, whether City have changed when going behind. Um, Simon, specifically on the on the Palace game, um, because obviously 2-0 at halftime, uh, the way they were playing, it didn't, it didn't particularly look good. What was the difference, do you think, in the second half? Because the recovery started before Guardiola made his changes. Yeah, I think half-time helped a lot. Um, you know, we spoke to Rodri after that game and he said something that seemed quite interesting to me about sometimes you want to score the second goal before you score the first. And, you know, City before half-time looked very kind of panicked and hasty, chasing away back into the game. Whereas... Uh, in the second half, they came back out with a bit more calm and you need that in Guardiola's football to kind of wait for the right opportunities. Um, kind of less haste, more speed um, mentality. And I think, you know, the obvious reference point would be the Villa comeback to say, we can do this. Um, interestingly, it was someone suggested to me that maybe the Real Madrid game had an impact as well when, you know, they conceded those two late goals and just had no answer. And since then, they've come back every time from uh, from the, two goals setbacks, behind. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think I think the crowd help at home. I think, you know, Pep mentioned how, how good the atmosphere has been this he season. Was, he was really winding the, cr- the crowd up against Palace as well, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And Haaland does it as well whenever he gets the the chance. Um, and, you know, again, it was terrific. And it was terrific again for for Nottingham Forest on, you know, a midweek game in August against, you know, a newly promoted team. So really, really good. Um, but there is a feeling now, I think, that they just need one goal to get back into it. And they don't need much time to, to complete the turnarounds because of the quality in the team and the chances they can create. So they, they've just kind of got themselves into a a groove where if they can get that first goal, they it, it feels inevitable that they will come back. Yeah, it's felt for a while, Adam, that um, City have never been able to wrestle the momentum back from a game. A, a game that's going against them. They've never been able to get the momentum for that game. Um, and in every single one of them, you think of, of West Ham, then Villa, and then this season, Newcastle and, and, and Palace. That's exactly what they did in each one of those games. Yeah, um, I think I remember on the Amazon Prime documentary about four years ago, not to go too far back, but it was the the Derby game that we lost in quite a crushing fashion where like we were two in the up and then I think it was Delph said, you know, when something goes against us, we just freeze, we just freeze. And that happened at Anfield that season. And I think it's it's took a 
you know, it's, it's seemingly now talk about four years to sort of completely turn that on its head where like now something does go against us. We don't, um, maybe that's the personnel in the squad, but yeah, I, I literally just think, um, I think the Real Madrid point's interesting. Maybe that could have been a factor where it's like, you know, if, if these teams can do it, then maybe we can too with the quality that we've got. But I just think after that West Ham and Villa game, it's just a case of positive reinforcement. The fact we did it last season because we had to, because the title was on the line, um, you know, you throw everything at it. Um, we've sort of learned through that, that we, we, if you know, should we face adversity, we can do that and, and still come out on top because of the quality of play that we've got in the team. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Haaland being the the jewel in the crown of that really now because nine in nine in five, you know, it's one of them where like like I you know like I said earlier as well last season we sort of had to score the picture perfect goals. So you think about those Villa goals, they were that especially that third goal that passed from De Bruyne was incredible. The finish from Rodri, they have to be exquisite goals for us to sort of score them. Whereas Harlan now it's ball into an area and he'll be there. Yeah. So you know it's yeah it's it's a brilliant shift to have had. Um, yeah. The players are enjoying it. I've just realised I should have opened the podcast by saying scoring nine in five, what a way to make a living. And uh, yeah, uh, missed, missed the chance, didn't I? Missed the chance. Really go yeah. <laughs> um, the goals against Simon against Palace. Um, a lot's been made. Like Adam said it before about conceding from set pieces. Um, but ultimately... I'm I'm just wondering how how much we should actually read into it because the first one was uh, there were a couple of errors in there. Edison spills the ball, Cancelo makes a, a foul that he could probably not make, um, and then the second one. I mean, first off, the question marks over whether it should have been a corner or a free kick to City, but then when they do get the corner, you know, it's it's is it poor marking? Is it good blocking from Palace? Like like it's a good header. I mean, how much should we read into City's uh, newfound defensive frailties from that one game? Yeah, they were rubbish goals to concede, and they were rubbish defensively at Newcastle. So I don't think you can you can write them off. You know, if they keep conceding that number of goals every week, then they're not gonna they're not gonna win the league. You've, you've seen it with New, with um, Liverpool. You know, Liverpool keep conceding the first goal and find that it's very difficult to come back every time and and win it. Um, that being said, you know, City will be more aware of what they need to improve than than we are and generally they they are very tight at the back and I think as well you can kind of I think with Newcastle and Palace you come away from that game thinking they've defended really badly um, whereas they did for say the first half or they've conceded really big chances and been punished for it but after that it's been a lot better and the opposition hasn't really had a sniff Yeah, so it's maybe easier to fix than you think because it's like defend from set pieces against Palace and you're laughing. Yeah. So just sign a new centre off. That's what. That's what will. Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hard, harder to to do than to say, but um, you know, I I don't think it's terrible cause for concern. Yeah. Um, let's finish the first part of the show on um, a couple of the controversies from the Palace game, Adam, because uh, I mentioned the uh, the corner for uh, for Palace's second goal. Um, should it have been a foul? Yeah. He just elbowed him, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. It, um, it's, it's a weird one, really, because, you know, you've got all this video assistant replaying, and, I mean, I thought it was clear as day. So the question really isn't, 
should have the refs spotted it? Should have the people in VAR spotted it? And we've had this discussion now for three years. And I don't really know what more to add because there just seems to be a level of, of inconsistency. You know, obviously the the, the Nunes headbutt, uh, which was also against Palace, was so explicit that that obviously did get, I think the ref spotted that anyway, but VAR definitely would have intervened and made him send him off for that. So I don't know where you draw the line, really. For me, it was a foul, um, not necessarily a red card, but definitely a foul. You see, there's the issue then, because uh, because it's not a red card. The VAR yeah. will look at it and go, uh, the VAR will basically look for a red card and not find one. And then, yeah. obviously, we, we go with the decision that was on the field. It's it's the same sort of thing as think of uh, what what would have happened there if um, Cancelo would flick the ball against Ayu and it had gone behind, but the referee had given a corner anyway. And the VAR looked at it and went, "Well, it's clearly a goal kick, but I can't I, I can't rule on this sort of thing." You get, it, it becomes a level of how how minute do you want the the VAR to look at? And I mean, ultimately, I think it's uh, I think you, your takeaway has probably got to be defend the corner better. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, it's hard to disagree with that, isn't it? Really, it's like sort of where do you draw the line on the severity of the incident? And you can't keep pulling every wrong decision back because otherwise, it's going to be twenty minutes added time at the end of every single half. So you can't. Yeah, I understand that. But um, and, then, and then Liverpool score the winner. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, how about Harlan Simon? Was uh, there's been a lot made of this? Was he lucky not to be sent off at two uh, 0 when he caught Anderson in the head? I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to tell you how to run your run your podcast, David. But I think you should be ashamed for <laughs> you know contributing to the agenda against Man City. Um, I yeah, from from listening to referees, um, it is not a red card from Harland, and I know a few people have like put a screenshot of Haaland and Anderson versus um, Mane and Edison. But if you watch the videos, there are very, very different uh, clear differences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can see why, you know, Palace would be annoyed by it, but equally within the letters of the law, it is not a red card. The strange thing is it's a yellow card um, and the referee didn't decide to give a yellow card despite being stood about five yards away. Um, but no, it would have been an injustice had he been sent off. Yeah, same sort of thing there. Uh, VAR went looking for a red card, didn't find one, so they couldn't recommend a yellow. Um, and finally, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, since since you called out my agenda, Simon, you're gonna get the last one. Um, was Edison lucky that the referee gave him a foul when his throw was blocked? Well, again, absolutely not. Um, you know, as as far as I believe the rule, according to referees. Um, the the goalkeeper can't be obstructed from distributing the ball, and it's whether he has his uh, is in control of the ball, which he was. So therefore, it was a foul. I don't know whether you would. Uh, I, I imagine you would support that as a member of the goalkeeping union. I absolutely would, and uh, I would go as far to say I've I've, I've heard uh, City fans and I've seen City fans uh, talking this week about how uh, Edison needs to be a bit more careful, um, and I disagree with that as well. I think uh, Edison is well within his rights to try and start off a very quick counter attack by bowling it out there. Um, knowing that there's Crystal Palace players around because he knows if they stick their foot, their feet in to, to block his roll, then if he's in the process of rolling it, then it, it should be a foul. And if it's uh, if it isn't given, the VAR will look at it and, and should find it. Yeah, and, and not only that, but I will say uh, there was a moment against Forrest when O'Brien, I think it was, charged into the box and it looks for all the world like Edison would give a penalty away like he always does. That was great. That was great goalkeeping. Yeah. And he, he checked his checked his dive, didn't he? So um New man. So he, 
he is being more sensible. Yeah, he's a new man. Um, final, final point for the first part, Adam. Um, Forest are the 88th different team that City have now beaten at Eastlands. Before that, they, uh, they'd they been to Eastlands once and won, uh, so they had a 100% record. Can you name any of the three teams that have uh, still got a 100% record at, uh, at the Etihad? Oh, I'm 23. Um, <laughs> let me... Let me think, let me think, let me there's think. A, there's a couple um, of these that have definitely done it in your lifetime. Okay, okay, let me think. Right, uh, 100% Yeah, record. won all their visits to the Etihad. Oh, uh, oh, you put me on the spot. I would I would definitely get one of these. Uh, uh, is Champions League included in this? Oh, yes, oh, yes. Right, okay, okay, okay. In fact, they are, th- they are three European teams. Right, yeah, uh, Two I was have done say, it in the Champions League. One of, One's done it in the, uh, the old UEFA Cup, so you might be a bit young for that one. Champions League. Who's beat us? Uh, maybe like did did Basel beat us? Yes, that's one right, of the three. That's one. Uh, Basel. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm just thinking of other ones where we've just like stupidly lost where we shouldn't have done in like a because I'm pretty sure we've beaten all the big teams, haven't we? We've like yeah. done PSG, done Madrid, done Barca. Uh, oh. There was a game when uh, Guardiola wasn't in the dugout. Ooh, so that would have been would that have been Dominic Tor- Torrent or something? Michael Arteta. Michael Arteta. Um, no idea, but it was probably one of his cringy team talks that cost us that day, no doubt. So. <laughs> yeah, that was that was Leon, and uh, ah, you know you're never getting the, uh, the the older one. That was for, from uh, Mark Hughes' time as manager. FC Micheland came to oh yes, um, of course, yeah, came to the Etihad and won one nil. <laughs> So, uh, so there we have it. Ad-free episodes are available on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. City don't normally make moves in the transfer market this late in the window anymore. Uh, as we record on deadline day, the club have confirmed the arrival of Manuel Akanji from Borussia Dortmund. I've been speaking to the host of the Yellow Wall podcast, Stefan Butzko, to find out more about the defender. I would say he's a good fit for Manchester City because he is a defender that uh, a, is very good at build-up play and dribbling forward with a ball. But at the same time, um, he is very pacey defender that uh, likes to play in a system that defends with a very high line. I think his biggest weaknesses really come when he has to sit back and defend and take pressure. Um, This is where he does not really excel and sometimes has a couple of lapses in concentration. Also, when it comes to clearing, when it comes to clearing crosses uh, in the box is maybe one of his weaknesses. But otherwise, I think he is a very strong forward defending center back. Yeah. Um, what's he like on the ball? Because obviously Guardiola demands uh, that his, his centre-backs are, are, are quite happy to have the ball at the feet. What's he, what's he like playing it out? Yeah, he's very, uh, actually pre- pretty uh, casual, I would say, on the ball in the sense that uh, you can uh, give him the ball and uh, he will, in a very relaxed and calm manner, more often than not, uh, either dribble it forward or, or pass it out. I would say that he is very good with both feet, even though obviously he's right-footed, so he's a little bit stronger with that foot. Um, but uh, yeah, he has uh, a good diagonal ball in his repertoire, but he can also put a good spin on the ball to maybe uh, surround uh, or, or play it around a midfielder, you know, to, to reach someone who was maybe in the cover shadow or so. So um, yeah, overall, 
I would say he is uh, one of the better defenders that Dortmund had in the recent uh, years. And uh, from last season, I would even say that he was Dortmund's best defender simply because Mats Hummels was uh, not in a good form and Akanji was sort of the rock in Dortmund's defense. So um, Manchester City are getting a very capable player. And uh, the only reason he did not play so far for Dortmund is because uh, he told Dortmund very early on that he wanted to seek a new challenge and uh, they have then adjusted accordingly by, uh, of course, signing Niklas Süle from FC Bayern, but also Nikla, uh, Nico Schlotterbeck from SC Freiburg. And those are, of course, two very capable, high-profile centre-backs too in Germany. So um, there just wasn't a roster spot and uh, Edin Tessic, the head coach of Borussia Dortmund, chose to not include Manuel Akanji in order to not risk any injuries because a sale was always the most likely and wished scenario because Dortmund wants to uh, convert him into Euros. Yeah, I, I mean, I was going to say about this because um, it feels like from from what you're saying, if he's if he is such a good fit for City, then I mean, at, at, at the minute, it, it's looking like the deal is is going to be about seventeen and a half million euros. That seems that seems awfully cheap. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, because. Uh, the way this has panned out, I think Dortmund are in a very weak position, actually, because uh, there were always some links with Italian clubs like Juventus or RC Milan. However, uh, I think he always refused those, to be honest. Uh, I think um, he was always waiting for a deal like this, but uh, it is now so late in the window that Dortmund uh, simply have been dealt a very bad hand with Manuel Akanji. I think initially everyone was expecting at least a 25 million euro fee um, and maybe we'll get there with bonuses and obviously it's just the initial report, right? So you do not know what the ultimate fee is yet and maybe we will never know. But uh, yeah, from a Dortmund perspective, you would hope that it's somewhere north of 20 million. However, um, considering it's very late in the window and Dortmund uh, basically are very desperate to turn <laughs> him into money because they sort of cannot afford to pay his salaries for one more season and then lose him on a free transfer. Um, yeah, this is sort of the situation they're in and hence Manchester City are getting a good deal and uh, I've read that he will make around 11 million. I, I don't know if it's pounds or euro per year, but um, this is also higher than uh, Dortmund's uh, sort of ceiling in, in salary. So um, yeah, he's going to get a deal that he wanted obviously uh he's always been a manchester united fan i didn't and, know that <laughs> uh, and uh, he has always voiced there was his wish to join manchester united but uh, unfortunately uh, didn't happen for him but uh, you know if you look <laughs> at the situation between the two manchester clubs i would prefer manchester city also because i think that almost guarantees you a premier league title and now since they have also erling haaland on their squad um, you also might call yourself Champions League winner at the end of this campaign or next campaign because Erling Haaland is just that good and excels in the Champions League. So um, even if Manuel Akanji is not going to be a, a starter, which is maybe the one thing that raises your eyebrow because I assume that's his ambition, um, I think he will at least be able to collect some silverware. And since centre-backs under Pep Guardiola are also very injury-prone, um, I think he will get some playing time. Yeah, it's, uh, I hope you're right on the silverware side of things. Um, but I mean, in terms of of his position in City's squad, um, it feels it feels a bit of an odd move for City to make because 
you know, when everybody's fit, it will leave them with uh, with five centre backs. Um, does he does he stand a chance of being able to win a place ahead of the likes of you know Ruben Diaz, John Stones, and, and Amrit Laporte, or is he going to be fighting with Nathan Ake for that fourth choice spot? Do you think? Well, unfortunately, I do not watch Manchester City enough to rate the other centre backs <laughs> uh, in in. In that relativity, however, uh, I do think he's very capable. He has been inconsistent. I would say he's been inconsistent at times. However, he can also reach world-class or high international class level um, any given game. And uh, so, yeah, I would say he can definitely compete any against any other centre-back in the world. Um, but I'm just as intrigued as you are right now to find out <laughs> if that is indeed the case or if I'm just wrong. <laughs> and uh, final question, Stefan, because um, obviously he's uh, he's been at Dortmund for a while. He obviously played with uh, with Haaland uh, in the in the years that Haaland was at, uh, at Dortmund. Um, what what's it going to be like if he makes the switch? And obviously uh, Dortmund and, and City are in the same Champions League group. Uh, I don't think it's going to affect Dortmund whatsoever, to be honest, because Manchester City are such towering favourites that whether Akanji plays or not, it doesn't really matter because uh, for Dortmund he arguably wouldn't have played much of a factor one way or another and so um yeah i've to be honest i just don't really care if if he plays or not it doesn't matter <laughs> certainly i think everyone is happy with how this is panning out because <laughs> manuel kanji joining manchester city certainly nothing i would have expected uh, as i started my day today so um this is for dortmund actually delightful news and uh you know no one's quite uh caring about whether he joins a direct rival of the Champions League group or not because Dortmund have uh, bigger worries, financial worries, especially because COVID struck a big gap into their uh, wallets. So uh, recouping something, which is above 15 million at least, is uh, yeah very much uh, needed for them, especially I think they did sort of calculate with the earnings of his transfer uh, much sooner than it actually happened. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was Stefan Butzko talking to me about the new signing, Manuel Akanji. Uh, let's bring in Frankie Maguire from All Villa, No Filler. It's Aston Villa away uh, this weekend. Hi, Frankie. How you doing, David? You all right? Not too bad, thanks. You sound uh, a bit downbeat with the way the season started. How's it going? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been doing a lot of long walks trying to compose <laughs> myself and get over the start to this season. Uh yeah, it's been a, a tough start to the season. I think that's probably a bit of an understatement. Yeah, um, this is, uh, I mean, before we get into all that, this is the first chance we've had to catch up with you since uh, the, the final day of, of last mm. year. Um, what, what, was, what was that like from uh, a Villa side of things? Um, it, was, it was kind of expected in the way that like Villa have this long history of um, blowing leads. Uh, so I think we were 2-0 up against Wolves earlier last season and lost 3-2 in the last 10 minutes. Um, Manchester United have done, done it to us a couple of times where we've been two ahead and they've come back. But the City game was like, when we went 2-0 up I, in sort of the 70th minute, I started to think, my God, we might actually do this. And then um, as soon as he took Coutinho off, I just don't know. The shape just fell apart. We we sort of panicked, and then you could feel it. You could feel the momentum. Just I just knew it. I knew. It. And then as soon as City did it, within about five minutes, the three goals. It was just. Um, 
I don't know, like classic Villa, I think, or we were saying on WhatsApp to each other, the Villa fans. It was just, um, <laughs> it was gutting, but at the same time, you're like, this is just the most unbelievable team we're playing against as well. Yeah. Simon, um, we've talked about comebacks already on the show. Uh, how how does City need, make sure that they don't need to do it again this weekend? Um, play better in the first 60 minutes. <laughs> Sounds simple, really, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I just kind of think the pressure and the occasion got to them on the final day. Um, and Villa, no one was expecting Villa to do anything and they um, they did. Um, and shocked City for, for most of the game. Um, whereas, you know, going into Saturday's game, the pressure is is firmly on Aston Villa and, and Steven Gerrard, which is not a position you want to be in when you've got Erling Haaland and everyone else coming at you. Yeah. Um, Frankie, what, what's the mood like around Gerrard at the moment? Because, I mean, he is coming under a lot of pressure, isn't he? How are the fans feeling about him? Yeah, I think the overall sense is that this season has started so badly that you just you just feel the fans have turned. Um, you know, I think there were warning signs at the, towards the end of last season where Villa were not getting good results. And the only two teams we beat were two teams that ended up getting relegated in Burnley and Norwich. And um, But I think everybody was kind of patient and calm because that, well, given the summer, you know, he's not got his own players. Let him make a few recruits. Um, let him work on his shape and his system. But there was a... Like, and pre-season actually went okay, but it was the first day of the season away at Bournemouth, who I think probably on paper are the weakest team will play all season. And we couldn't create a chance. We lost 2-0. Um, every, there was no intricacy in the final third. Um, our shape was all over the place. And we just kept crossing the ball into the area, hoping for the best when they had a defender who's six foot three. And every performance since then... I th- I, well, Firstly, I think that Bournemouth game was a real shock to the system. And then I think that every game since then has just left Villa fans increasingly um, concerned over how we're playing. And Arsenal again last night like get to the final third and we just look like we don't know what we're supposed to be doing really. So it was... Um, uh, it, we just look like a team that's somewhat rudderless at the moment. Yeah. And, is, um, is, there any, is there any talk that Gerard might be out of a job anytime soon? I mean... Um, the talk is that he has um, the Arsenal and the City game. I think the board probably accepts these are two of the best teams in the league. So whatever happens, happens. But there's two games after that, uh, one of them in Leicester and I think the other Southampton. I can't quite remember. But um, they're the two games that I think he'll likely be, most likely be judged on. Um, I think a fair few Villa fans have probably made their mind up already and can't see it getting any better. Um, and, uh, you know, you never know. If, I mean, if the City game goes as badly as it potentially could do, it might be the end for him. But um, so it's a big game, really, for Steven Gerrard, I think. Yeah. Adam, just looking at, at City going into this one, um, how does Guardiola manage the squad at the moment? Because uh, it's we're starting to get to that that two games a week period. Uh, it's it's soon after the Forest game. He's played Haaland in every one of them. Alvarez is pushing for, uh, for that position as well. Um, can you see any changes for this? Yeah, I think you can sometimes with Pep, especially when it gets to the uh, the I don't know the heavily saturated part of the season where there's lots of games, you can sort of tell who he's going to rotate based on who he takes off. Um, should we be comfortable in the game that we're playing? So, for instance, last night, you know, five six nil up, uh, you can sort of tell. So, I do think Harlan probably starts again. I think he has to because I think at the moment it's just a case of giving the ball and it'll end up in the net. So he'll he'll end up playing probably another 70 minutes. And I think the thing with Haaland as well is 
he doesn't seem to physically exert himself as much as the other players on the pitch because of his heat map. He doesn't really stray from that box um, very often. Uh, and then, you know, it's, yeah, I guess the rest of it is a toss up. You'd think De Bruyne will come back in. He was rested, so he'll he'll get his start. Uh, perhaps Bernardo, who's played consistently, will, will drop out. But um, I think they'll just be three or four players chopped and changed for that game. I think probably the same back four. And then I think maybe we'll see a slightly different front three in midfield. So I'll go for three changes. But um, at, the, at the way we're playing at the moment, and particularly the way that Villa are playing, and the way that I think Villa are going to play, I don't think it's going to affect us too much. Yeah. Simon, for, for City and, and the defensive side of things... Um, uh, it's it, we're into that period of time when it's busy in the season and they've got Walker and Cancelo as the only fullbacks. Um, it's it's notable, I think, that, that Guardiola keeps taking Cancelo off. Yes, yeah, I've noticed that too. Although, you know, what are you saying about Sergio Gomez? I completely forgot he was there. So what does that say? <laughs> well, I mean, he, he shouldn't be there. He should be at Girona. But um, for someone who should be at Girona, it sounds like Cobb. Is that the City version of Coventry being sent to Coventry, <laughs> your owner? Yeah. Um, to say he should be there, I have been very impressed with his start and I think he will get more minutes. Um, so, And I've also been really impressed with Rico Lewis. I'm not re- really expecting him to play much in the Premier League, but he's been fantastic to say he's only 17. So, yeah, you've only got Walker and um, Cancelo. I think the, you know... Central defence is a is a worry as well. I know Akanji's come in, but not much depth there at the minute. Um, but see, City, I've got five players out, so maybe one or two of them might be back by by Villa by weekend. Yeah, um, Frankie for for Villa and and uh, kind of lining up for this game. Who uh, who do you think will be the players that will do the damage to City if it's going to happen? Because um, I noticed like Coutinho keeps starting on the bench, doesn't he? Mm, it's it's a bit. I mean, it's it's very hard to predict because Villa's squad keeps being chopped and changed so much. Um, so I mean, the players that could do the damage, kind of in an attacking sense. I, th- I mean, Buendia's probably been a bit better than Coutinho this season, though he struggled against Arsenal. And Bailey, with his pace on the right, you know, if he starts, that might cause you some problems. If say City push forward with their fullbacks and there's a bit of space in behind to knock it forward to Bailey. That could potentially cause a problem. Um, but, I, but Villa are, are just so hard to predict at the moment with how we're going to line up. It's 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 difficult to say really how we could, with certainty, how we might actually hurt um, City. I mean, last season, it was more the long balls over the top for Ollie Watkins, which caused uh, Fernandinho a lot of problems. That's not going to be the case this time around. So I'm not sure the long ball um, would work. Um, but yeah, Ollie Watkins running around, making runs and maybe getting on the end of a, a long ball forward. That, yeah, that could happen. Um, but overall, I mean, I'm very much expecting City to absolutely dominate. And I think it's going to be a big game for Bubakar Kamara, who's um, probably been our standout player this season. A, a big signing over the summer, free transfer, 22 years of age, French international. Really good player, to be honest. And it'll be interesting to see how he gets on against Man City. He's going to have a... It's going to be a tough day out for him, but um, it could be one where he shows his quality. I think. Yeah, is it is it shape more than anything at the at the at the moment for Villa? That's the issue because um, I I keep seeing things about uh, about wingers and you know not mm. having not having the right players for the, the the sort of shape that that Gerard wants to play. Yeah, we don't seem to play with wingers really. I mean, we I mean we play with Leon Bailey, I guess, but there's no real balance because then you've got 
you know, if you play 4-3-3, you've got Buendia or Coutinho out left and they don't have pace, so they keep coming deep and then everybody's sort of getting in each other's way all the time. Um, you know, and what I saw, I went to Crystal Palace away last week and what kept happening was Villa was were constantly passing around at the back and then there was nobody from midfield to come and take the ball. So the opposition would put us under pressure. We'd panic and just lump it forward, hoping for the best to a striker whose strength isn't holding the ball up. And in the end, the midfield just kept getting bypassed. Um, or we would just make a mistake. And City, you know, I mean, you're the absolute masters of putting teams under pressure uh, when they've got the high up the pitch. So, you know, that's going to be... Um, I, I wouldn't be, be surprised if Villa take a more direct approach and just try and avoid that altogether uh, this weekend. Um, but yes, I think shape, it just looks to me like when the players win the ball, as you could see at Arsenal yesterday, they get the ball and they look up and it's like there's, the passing options are just not there. And you compare that to Arsenal, and Arsenal just seem to have so much movement and dynamism. Um, of course, you know, we're overloading our defence, whereas we would attack and there'd be like two attackers against five Arsenal defenders. It, it just looks like a team at the moment that's not really not sure of what it wants to be and um, it's quite concerning uh, even this early in the season. Yeah, I did. Uh, I read a, a, a piece you wrote recently about uh, about basically identity of the team and and, and kind of what it mm. wants to be as well. Um, uh, Simon, for for City going into this one, um, I, I think I, I wondered how much uh, City were reliant on Gundogan this season, uh, just to kind of help help control the tempo tempo of games. Because you look at, at the way he's the, the way City played when he wasn't in the side, and then when he was brought on against Crystal Palace, and then what he did against Nottingham Forest. He's been quietly very key to this season, hasn't he? Yeah, I think I feel like Gundogan's a bit more direct um, than maybe Bernardo, certainly. And I feel like that plays into the kind of get the ball to Haaland plan that has worked pretty well for for, for City so far this season. So I, I don't know whether, yeah, the fact that Gundogan, Obviously, he can. He's just sort of more attacking in the sense that he's he's around the box and he knows those balls to play to sort of to make space in the box for for other players, whether that's Haaland or anyone else. So I feel like Gundogan has looked better this season. Um, not that he wasn't great before, before, but I think City being more attacking suits Gundogan more. You see stats pop up all the time about clubs and players, and you want to know that exact thing about City. There's an answer. StatCity.co.uk Want to find out all of the players who played alongside club legends like David Silva, Sergio Aguero or Vincent Company? Or maybe you'd like to know which team found it hardest to score past Joe Hart. You can find out City's record in every competition, at every stadium, and under every manager. Just go to statcity.co.uk and browse away. That's statcity.co.uk. The Blue Moon Podcast. If City won't let you down on the pitch, let us let you down off it instead. And Adam, I'm just wondering for like the way this season is shaping up. I mean, City fans not got many complaints about how it started. Uh, neither Arsenal fans actually looking at the way they've started. Given that Liverpool seem to be coming back into into things uh, at the moment, I guess you look at this run of fixtures for City and think that actually putting a run together now is is going to be quite important. Yeah, it always is. I think 
I think Pep has instilled in the team now that it's just one game at a time. Don't think too far ahead. And I think that's been probably the key to our consistency and success over the last five years. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, you pretty much once you get into European competition and cup competition, the truth is there's no break because then they go out on international break. It's just relentless. And this is almost the only part of the season where it's, it's pretty chilled out for them and it's one game a week. So now now we're into the real business. Um, I think they've just got to go one game at a time. You know, keep injuries at a minimum. Um, and we've done it uh, time and time again. So I think, I actually disagree a little bit on Liverpool coming back into it. I think they've got some real problems. But um, I won't go into that too much. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think we'll be fine. You know, we've just got to take each game as it comes, Villa next, and then uh, go on into the Champions League. But... I think we tend to do well at this early part of the season where like there's not a great deal of pressure and no one's going, oh, is this the quadru you know, like quadruple talk, you know, then we've got the April always seems to be the hardest bit because we have like games against your Madrid's Bayern Munich, so all those teams wedged into it as well. So um I th- I think we'll be fine leading up to the World Cup. Um I really do. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm confident. Got to start the Champions League group well, I guess, as well, because it's uh, we're, we're talking about Villa at the moment, but Sevilla is on the horizon. And yeah. um, I mean, again, we talked about rotating Haaland and Alvarez. Do you, do you see Haaland dropping out of either of these two games, maybe, for uh, for Alvarez? I don't know how you can at the moment, but then again, it is Pep. Um, but I think we saw last night that they can play together. And I think Alvarez said that in post-match. It's not me or him. It's both of us and Alvarez can sort of play off the striker as that second striker drift out wide um, just sort of drag defenders out of position through his off the ball movement so I think they really they work really well together and I think we also saw that when we used to have Aguero and Jesus there'd be occasions where they both play up front although we played a back five system back then um, yeah I don't think it has to be either or but I think at the moment because of the sheer volume of goals that Haaland's scoring uh, I don't know how you can drop him, and I think it'll be a case of Alvarez rotating with the likes of Foden, Mares, um, Bernardo, those kinds. Yeah. Um, so that would be that would be my guess. I think we'll play Haaland against Villa. Hopefully, another hat trick, and then hopefully he comes off for sixty minutes. I think that'd be the <laughs> ideal scenario. Yeah, Frankie, you must be uh, you must be praying that uh, Guardiola uh, chooses this weekend to to make his rotations. Um, how how do you think uh, Gerard will approach it? Um. Well, uh, at home, we've been playing kind of a Christmas tree formation. So four, three, two, one. Um, I'm kind of fascinated to know whether he goes with the with a four, two, three, one, if indeed we sign Leander Dendonka, which seems to be happening today, potentially. Um, that gives us another defensive option. So maybe he would play up alongside Kamara in a pivot two pivot. Um but as I say, I mean, it's just really difficult to call how Gerard's going to approach games at the moment because formation seems to change week by week. And um, City, obviously, are now the by far the best team with a face. So I'd, I'd, I'm sort of interested to know myself how he's going to approach it kind of defensively and whether we become a bit more, uh, I don't know, like a maybe a 4-2-3-1. I, I, I don't know. A lot of fans want that 4-2-3-1, but... Um, if I was to guess what formation he picks, I'd say he goes with the one he's, his favoured one that he's picked at home recently, which is the Christmas tree, the, the diamonds sort of four, three, two, one, and um, maybe Coutinho and Buendia play together as happened last year away at City. But um, 
I don't know. It's, it's just it's just very hard to call Villa at the moment, um, and I think it sort of reflects kind of maybe even a lack of certainty in the in the management, like what what even they want with the players they have available. Um, I'm just praying, basically, yeah, that that rotation happens and that we don't have to deal with what my friend calls Erling Targaryen. Um, <laughs> so Erling Haaland, basically, this Game of Thrones. Um, just a, a hero from Game of Thrones. I mean, he's a God. He's an absolutely unbelievable player, isn't he? So, um, I think Villa Park is somewhere that he would uh, be licking his lips on going at the moment with the current form we're in. Yeah. Well, uh, I hate to do this to you. We got the charity back coming up a bit later on. Uh, what's your score <laughs> prediction for that? Oh, four nil Villa. Four nil. Why not? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh, well, you know, you've 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 given us a fair few beatings in recent years. I won't forget that six one. Um, I think it might be something quite similar this weekend. I, th- I think I'm going to go for one. I think we might get a goal, give ourselves some hope, but you're just in such good form. And, um, you know, Haaland's there. And who knows, maybe Grealish will reappear as well and he will he'll might be up for it. So, uh, yeah, I think I can't see it being anything other than a 4-1, but I, I hope Villa can surprise me. Yeah. Uh, well, Frankie Maguire from the uh, All Villa No Filler podcast. Thank you very much. I would say all the best for the weekend, but the, the way <laughs> you've been talking, I think all the best for the season might be uh, yeah. might be the words that are needed here. <laughs> Thank you very much, David. Always good to talk to you. Frankie Maguire from All Villa No Filler. Now, uh, Frankie's been giving his insight into Villa, so let's hear more about City's Champions League opponents for this coming week. I've been speaking to Tom Harris from La Liga Lowdown to get a view of how the Spanish side have been doing this season. <laughs> well, I mean... Really badly, to be honest, David. It's been a bit of a nightmare start for Sevilla this season. One point from their opening three games. Um, and, you know, we, we all thought it was going to be difficult with them losing Jules Koundé and Diego Carlos. They're two kind of centre-backs who were the pillars, really, of their defensive kind of setup. They've lost both of them and, you know, they're really, really paying for it at the moment. Um, they lost a tough trip on, on the opening day to, away to Osasuna. Um, but, you know, a home draw the following week with Raya Valladolid, just been promoted, was really, really disappointing. We thought that would be the game to get them back on track. They actually went behind and needed a goalkeeping mistake to end up drawing that game. And then last week, they they, they lost to the newly promoted Almeria. So, you know, three, you know, winnable games and, you know, they've only come away with one point. So very, very disappointing. And, you know, I think the defeat to Almeria was kind of indicative of what's going on. You know, Julian Lopetegui, the, the coach, he's um, he's been there for three seasons now. He's done well, but He's cutting a bit of a lonely figure at the moment. I mean, after that Almeria game, uh, the sporting director Monchi went onto the pitch and kind of pleaded with the Sevilla fans to get behind the team with the players. And Julian Lopetegui wasn't there. He was giving a press conference, kind of laying into the, the Sevilla players for showing a lack of mentality. So it's not looking great at the moment. Um, you know, they've got Barcelona, Villarreal, Atletico Madrid all to come. They've obviously got Manchester City next Tuesday. So it's a really crucial period for them. And yeah, they need a good performance this weekend at Barcelona if they're going to have any chance in the City game, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, City recently have, have had this habit of giving teams a two-goal start. I mean, is, that, is this <laughs> one of the games where you expect that might not happen then? Yeah, I mean, the thing is with City at the moment is that, as I mentioned before, they've lost Kunde and they've lost Diego Carlos. And in order to replace them, they, they brought in Mark Cow from Galatasaray who's yet to play for the club. He's he's still been you know injured the entire time he's been in Seville. And Tongi Nianzu from Bayern Munich, who looks like a very promising young player, but he's actually only played around 15 full games of professional football. And he's been thrown right into the mix um, alongside Karim Rakic, who actually used to play for Manchester City. And it's just looked a bit 
you know, they've not really struck up a partnership yet. As I said, Nyonzu is vastly inexperienced. So they're conceding lots of chances. And, you know, with the likes of Erling Haaland, you know, up against these two kind of players who are lacking confidence, you'd expect City to take the lead. And, you know, from there on in, you'd expect them to, to see out the game. But obviously, this is the Champions League. Anything can happen. But I think, you know, Erling Haaland is probably the last player that those two players want to come up against. Yeah, um, just looking through the list of names as well. There's some names in there that uh, that City fans will remember. You mentioned uh, Kareem Rekic. There's uh, there's Jesus Navas is still in there. Um, Fernando's in there as well. It'll be like it's like an old Pellegrini team. This. Yeah, it really is. I mean, Fernando is he didn't quite hit it off at City. I mean, obviously Fernandinho was there around about the same time and stole all the headlines. But I thought he was a very solid player uh, in Manchester, and he, he's gone to Sevilla, and he's probably one of their most important players at the moment. He's their captain. Uh, 35 years old and he's more or less playing every single game and Jesus Navas as well I mean he's 36 so uh, even older but he's he's a really important player he's got a bit of support now with uh, Gonzalo Montiel playing at right back to kind of give him some time off but they're two really important players and they've also got Alex Tellers obviously former of Manchester United Eric Lamella in there as well there's a lot of uh, players that Premier League fans might recognise but, you know, I think a lot of them, like with Lamella and with Tellers, aren't the same players that we saw in the Premier League. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of uh, the players, then, because obviously we talked about a few names there. If City are going to, if there's going to be an upset and, uh, and City are going to suffer at the hands of Sevilla, who are the players that will do it? Um, well, for me, um, Papu Gomez is, is the biggest threat. Um, he also 34 years old. So, like I say, the Sevilla team is... Vastly experienced, um, but he recorded, I think it was 16 assists in um, Serie A a couple of seasons ago for Atalanta. He's a very good creative player, likes to play, you know, out to the left or in the centre. And he's, you know, quite a small kind of low centre of gravity, good dribbler and, and a good assist maker as well. Um, and then up top, I mean, it's, it's another problem with Sevilla at the moment. You know, they, they really base their identity when they had Kunde and Carlos on a, on a solid defence that could, you know, protect slender leads um, because their attack wasn't, you know, so prolific. Now they've lost that defence and they've not got that prolific attack. You know, it's kind of, they're not scoring many, but they're also conceding a lot more as well. So that's where they're struggling. Their two strikers, um, Yusuf Nesiri, he, he scored 18 goals two seasons ago in La Liga. He did really, really well. Had an injury, scored five last time out and, and hasn't really looked the same since. And Rafa Mir, who uh, formerly of Wolverhampton Wanderers, Again, a good player, but just not consistent enough, I don't think, for the Champions League. So they do have players who can score and can you know, come up with, with, with moments, but not consistently enough. I'd say, as I said, Papu Gomez is probably the player to look out for alongside maybe Lucas Ocampos if he plays on the right. Yeah, um, just looking at, at the rest of the group, because obviously um, getting drawn into a group with uh, with City and, and Borussia Dortmund might not be uh, it, it might not be the best thing for them if they're, if they're, if they're currently struggling with the, with having lost the defence, as you say. What, how, how do you think they'll be aiming for this group? Because they've gone in as second seeds, um, but it, it might be a case of aiming for the Europa League, I guess. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I mean, last season they had a really disappointing Champions League campaign. I think they won one game out of their... Um, best six and ended up in the Europa League in a group that, you know, to be honest, we expected them to top. So this time they're up against, you know, Manchester City and Borussia Dortmund. Third place might be, you know, the most realistic way out, but obviously they'll be aiming for a bit more. Copenhagen as well. I mean, they've got to travel to Copenhagen in the midst of that kind of nightmare block of fiction I was talking about before, you know, in the middle of Barcelona, Atletico Madrid, City, you know, so they might they might even struggle there as well. But, you know, I, I try and be a bit more optimistic for them and say, yeah, they can go for the Europa League and see if they can make a dent in that competition instead. 
Yeah. Now you mentioned um, obviously about resolute defending uh, in previous years with the, with the back two. Um, what? Uh, how do you think they'll approach this game? Uh, because we've seen a lot of teams against City basically stick everybody behind the ball. Is that is, is that what Severa likely likely going to do? Yeah. I mean, they, as I said, they don't really have the kind of gung ho attacking style. They're not going to throw you know men forward, and they, they've never really done that under Julian Lopetegui. But as I said, they were able to rely on that strong defence and they're no longer able to do that. So perhaps that, you know, they might say, well, you know, why don't we go for it against the City side? But probably not advisable. It's a really difficult one. And, and as I said before, Lopetegui seems to be losing the trust of his players, seems to be losing the trust of the fans. Um, I think they're probably going to have to try and go for damage limitation and, you know, sit back and see what they can do. I mean, Neon Zoo, who they brought in from Bayern Munich, he's, he's 20 years old. He, he looks a really, really promising player. And, you know, in the future, he might be able to strike up a partnership with, with Marcao, who's, who, as I mentioned, yet to play. But at the moment, I think it's just about getting over this really rough patch that they're going through. And obviously, up against Lewandowski on, on Saturday and then Haaland on Tuesday, it really isn't ideal. Yeah, let's hope City can take advantage of this rough patch as well. Um, let, let's finish, Tom, with uh, a score prediction. We've got a charity bet coming up and uh, you know Sevilla better than I do. So uh, let's have uh, let's have a score prediction for this game. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure really. I mean, I, I I don't want to be too negative on Sevilla's part, but I, you know, the way City are going at the moment, you know, they're obviously scoring goals for fun. I'd, I'd probably go for a three nil maybe for Manchester City, but as I said, it's the Champions League. Maybe Sevilla pull something out of the bag, but I'm not massively optimistic. If you enjoy the show, please give it a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. That was Tom Harris from La Liga Lowdown. Um, now it's time to uh, put your money where your mouth is because it's the charity bet. Uh, we're on £120 so far for the season. William Hill has given each of us a £10 correct score single and we're giving the winnings to the Man City Fans Food Bank Support Group. They're helping the Trussell Trust and Manchester Central Food Bank support people living in food poverty in Manchester. Uh, we heard Frankie suggest uh, 4-1 uh, for City against uh, Villa Park. That's 18-1 to 1 and £180 if he's right. Uh, Simon, what are you having for this one? Uh, 3-0, Haaland hat-trick, obviously. Uh, 3-0, we, we don't do the Haaland hat-trick, but, but the 3-0 <laughs> bit is uh, 9-1 to one and £90 if you're right. Adam? I said 3-1. Uh, 3-1 is 10 to 1 and 100 pounds if you're right. Um, that's also the odds for Tom's prediction at uh, Sevilla. 3-0 to City is uh, is also 10 to 1 and 100 pounds if he's right. Um, Simon, what are you having for uh, for the trip to Sevilla? Uh, I've gone for 3-1. Haaland hat-trick? Of course. Yes, well, uh, again, we don't do the Harland hat trick bit, but uh, eleven to one if you're right with the score, that's uh, that's one hundred and ten pounds. And Adam, what are you having? And I've gone for an emphatic five-one. In many ways, I hope you're right because it'd be our biggest ever win, uh, forty-five to one. So uh, four hundred and fifty quid if you are spot on with that. Uh, you got to be eighteen or over to gamble. Prices can change. And for more on responsible gambling, take a look at begambleaware.org. Uh, we're going to finish with a couple of listener questions. Get in touch for next week at Blue Moon Podcast on Twitter. You can email us as well through the website. Just go to bluemoonpodcast.com and fill in the form. Um, EJ David on Twitter kicks us off this week. He says uh, a nice hypothetical for you. Which past City player from the takeover era would you love to see play in our current first 11? Um, I'm going to kind of caveat this a little bit, and I'm going to add in that they can't have played under Guardiola. Otherwise, uh, it's just it's just going to be very similar to the current starting 11. And everyone would just pick Aguero or, or Silva or Torre or something like that. So, um, Adam, as the as the City fan, who would uh, which player from the takeover era would you uh, would you like to see in this team? Tavares. 
Absolutely. He's a, yeah, uh, I just think he'd, be, he'd fit like a glove, similar to what Alvarez has done. But um, he was, and I think probably still is, like my favourite ever City player just because... I mean, it's just because of the age I'm at that the you know the age where I started to consistently go to games was sort of around where we got took over, and it was like a really exciting period. And he was for me the player that almost carried us on his back for the best part of two years because of how good he was. And I think if he came into this team with how good he was in front of goal from from all areas on the pitch, really, he just would have been incredible. So Tevez every day of the week for me. Yeah, Simon. I know you're not a City fan, but uh, is there anybody that uh, from your time covering City that you would have uh, you would have chucked in there? Uh, I've got two shouts actually. Uh, one is Edin Dzeko, just That's... because he sort of was underrated and phenomenally clinical, and just watching Haaland kind of made me think a bit about him. Yeah, not a pet player though, is he? So um... no, no. Um, and the other one, in part, because whenever I see him, he talks about how much he'd love to be in the team right now is uh, Sean Wright Phillips. Yeah, I who, can... Uh, yeah, he's both pre- and post-takeover. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting shout. I mean, I, I was going the other way with this question and thinking someone like Wayne Bridge, just to, like, just to see what Guardiola did. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, Scott like, Sinclair. I've got to, yeah, I've got, to, I've got to work out how to get Scott Sinclair into this team. Goodness me. Yeah, I thought just thought it'd be interesting. Um, finally, Richard on Twitter says, uh, why can't fans stay to the end of games to give the team a good reception when they leave the field? What must Haaland have thought when he collected his second match ball in a few days and then walked around the pitch to applaud practically empty stands? Um, Simon, you mentioned before that um, Harlem was just having fun as he was as he was walking around. I didn't think it was that empty um, when he was when he was celebrating the crowd last night. No, no, I'm not having that really. Um, he, you know, it, people are entitled to leave once the game's finished, aren't they? Um, and I thought the crowd were really, really good all night. Like I say, to say it was a, a midweek game against newly promoted side. So um, I imagine Harlem thought I'm. Very fucking good at football. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I wish I could make that the title of the show, but I've promised myself that I wouldn't put swearing in there anymore. Um, Adam, the uh, the thing is, again, it's it's like I can I, I can kind of understand people leaving at 6-0 with five or six minutes to go in a midweek night game. You know what I mean? Yeah, I wanted to go home and have my tea, so that's what I did. I, uh, <laughs> like, it's, it's, you know, look, it's one of them. It's football is a part of life and another part of life is also travel so uh yeah we leave on about 88 minutes unless it's a huge game you know because ultimately you can get the tram and you get home 40 minutes quicker usually uh we messed it up last night and you saw me on gorton road david trying to get an uber so um yeah (laughs) it was (laughs) it's one of them look it's it's just about the, the practicality of getting home for some people not everyone lives close to the Etihad and I just think it's not something to look too much into at the end of the day when Harlan came off he came off to a full stadium giving him a, sta- giving him a standing ovation so I don't think he'll be feeling any discernible lack of appreciation after that one last night I think it was a, a pretty good reception for him to be honest yeah, do you know what's another thing that this question's reminded me that that's really annoyed me recently, Simon? You know, I see these uh, Twitter posts at the minute of uh, opposition fans, uh, and the, the, it'll say, the caption will say something like "absolute limbs at the Etihad" where for that goal, and then there'll be like it'll be a video of uh, like like 
15, 20 seconds after the goal was gone in, just everybody applauding and it being really kind of placid. And then you look at the scoreboard and it'll say City 5. And you're like, well, of course there's, of course it's not gone off after the fifth one's gone in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there's um, a, a Forest tweet that's gone, that's been rather ratioed with quote tweets for sort of like, oh, at least I'd rather lose 6-0 every week than be here every week. And it it's just like people... People being silly for silly sake, and it, you know, I, I, there, there have been times where the Etihad's been pretty quiet, and you know, I think Guardiola's football and the four 0 up every week, you know, it's hard to get too excited about the fifth. But um, I have been, yeah, covering City for a number of years now, and uh, the atmosphere this season every week has been terrific. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right, well, that brings us to an end for this week's Blue Moon podcast. I'm David Mooney. Thanks, as ever, to Simon Bakowski. Thank you. And to Adam Monk. Thank you very much. Join me again next week to review the games against Aston Villa and Sevilla as City start their Champions League campaign. That was the Blue Moon podcast. Please give the show a rating and a review where you can. And don't forget, you can listen without the ads by signing up to our Patreon. You'll also get an extra episode each Monday. Here's a clip of this week's. When I pulled up to Wembley on the coach, there was a collective sort of groan from everyone on there when everyone looked at their phones and saw that Willy Caballero was starting in goal instead of Joe Hart. But kind of times 10 what it had been three yeah. years before because... That, well, he, there was there was less trust in Caballero than there was in Pantelimon. I think it'd be safe to say there was no trust in Caballero. <laughs> he, was, he had been pretty woeful whenever he'd played. He he never looked confident, let's say that. And he dropped a few clangers as well. But um, yeah, so this game, another down, trip down to Wembley, another largely disappointing season where this probably turned out to be one of the high points. I know City got to the Champions League semi-final, but kind of didn't really show up, did they, in, in the yeah. two legs. But um, yeah, I went down there by myself actually to this one. Caballero didn't do like too much, I don't think, in the 90 minutes. Obviously, he hadn't made any mistakes, which was great. I think... I probably expected something terrible to happen and it didn't. Um, but then I don't think anyone expected him to just save three penalties on the trot. And then, so it was kind of like when he when he saved the first one, obviously everyone was celebrating. And then by the third one, I, I was just sort of hugging random people. And every, <laughs> it was just a, it was just a mass sort of like just outpouring of, I guess, surprise, but also celebration. You can listen to more of that at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. And join us again next time for another episode.